Welcome to Grid Talk, a series of conversations with the leaders and innovators shaping the 21st century grid. Hosting the podcast is Marty Rosenberg, an award-winning energy journalist. The series is sponsored by the Department of Energy's Office of Electricity Advanced Grid Research Division. Now, here's Marty Rosenberg with Grid Talk. Hi, and welcome to Grid Talk. Today we have with us Mike Fair with Mid-American Energy. Mike is Senior Vice President of Renewable Generation and Compliance. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Good, good. So I'm really pleased to have you on board today to talk about some bold initiatives that you've taken at Mid-American to secure renewable portfolio uh, generation. I wonder if you could go into the highlights of what you've been able to achieve. Yeah, so we had set out a vision some years ago to be 100% renewable. And we established that vision after we already had started our wind fleet. So we have about 7,000 megawatts of of wind in our fleet right now, a little over that actually. And um, at the time we set this 100% renewable uh, goal, we had, I think, about 50% roughly of our retail load that we could cover with renewable energy certificates uh, from our own wind generation. So um, we wanted to take that up to 100 at the, you know, at the time, I think most of our customers were using a rec-based approach to measure their own sustainability uh, and try to advance their own sustainability goals. So um, in that effort, we created a program called Green Advantage, where we have the, uh, our, our regulator, the Iowa Utilities Board, verifies the, the recs we, we have uh, retired on behalf of customers and they verify the load. And uh, last year, uh, we had 83.6% coverage, which, you know, I think is, uh, is really a pretty good story for us. So the, the wind blows pretty fiercely in Iowa as across the, the central prairie. Um, you have abundant resources, but it's really come on fast, uh, according to your website. Uh, it was 0% of your generation as recently as two decades ago and now stands at 60%. Is that correct? Yeah, that's the 60% of our capacity and plate capacity. I, I believe that's correct. We um, we started, we put our first wind in. It went into service in, uh, I think, 2004 was the first year it had been in service for the entire year. So uh, that those 7,000 megawatts of wind um, have all come into service since. So at the same time, you've uh, brought down coal as a percentage of of generation from 70% to under 25%. For those of our utility listeners that are concerned about going from a uh, reliable source to an intermittent source, what kind of challenge challenges that were created by flipping to wind and how have you been able to address them? Yeah, we we still do have dispatchable generation resources. Uh, We have, we still have coal generating units, and we also have part ownership in a nuclear facility, and then we have natural gas uh, facilities too. But part of the reason that we're able to to add this much wind is that we're part of the larger MISO market. And so, um, you know, we export energy uh, or we import energy just depending on the the market conditions in that hour. We We don't balance against our own load. But we do have an obligation to maintain uh, sufficient capacity, accredited capacity, 
to serve our load, and we do that, and uh, that's something that, that that we do to you know make sure we're in full compliance with the MISO requirements. How big a role does storage and battery storage now play on your grid, and do you see that changing as battery storage technology evolves? Yeah, it doesn't really play a very big role now. Part of the issue. Um, I, I think it will in the future, so I'll, I'll just answer that up front. I think it's got a role to play, definitely, um, as a grid resource. But for right now, most of the technologies that are commercial technologies were really optimized around uh, solar. And so if you're in an area that has high solar penetration, uh, generally you're looking to move energy from uh, you know, late afternoon, maybe into early evening. So you're you're just trying to shift a few hours of that production back to later in the day, and that's a different. That if you optimize your storage technology around that, you're going to get a different solution than if you did it for wind. For wind, we may go several days or a week where we would want to to charge an energy storage device, and then maybe you go a week without doing anything, and then maybe you discharge it for a week. Um, so it's a different technology and we do, we look at, we have a lot of different battery chemistries and other, um, uh, potential energy based storage technologies, uh, that we look at that we think will, um, some of those technologies are, are eventually going to be, uh, commercialized and they'll be a good solution for, um, for wind. What's your total megawatt capacity of, of wind that you have to call on? Uh, right now, we have 7,000 megawatts of wind, actually 7,100 megawatts of wind. And how much of that potential energy would you say goes untapped in the evening when when demand is low and winds are generally picking up? Um, because we're in the MISO market, we don't match against our own load. So, you know, our wind will will go on the grid if there's not a transmission congestion issue or constraint. And so we sell that energy on the wholesale market uh, here in MISO, and that'll displace other other uh, more expensive generation um, that would otherwise be sold into that MISO market. You haven't had a situation like they had a number of years back in the Pacific Northwest where the, they had so much hydro and wind power coming on at the same time that they had to give some of it away? Yeah, we, ha- we do occasionally have periods where um, we have more wind power than we can get out uh, to load. So if load is light in Iowa and that energy has to get um, shifted either to eastern Iowa or outside of Iowa or, or maybe to, to Minneapolis, and if there's a transmission issue, uh, we have had times where we've had to curtail wind. And so um, that's actually a fairly common occurrence. It's usually not a very large percentage of wind. Um, but in the spring and fall, that, that happens. Um, where we have to curtail wind. Let me ask you, Mike, uh, there's a lot of focus now on the the, uh, coming wave of EV deployments and the electrification of transportation uh, with major automakers like Ford announcing that they're going to make their car sales and truck sales almost exclusively EVs in in the coming decades. Um, As that happens and as regulators encourage the use of time and day rates so that a lot of uh, recharging can take place in the evening. Given your proximity to to cities like Chicago and uh, other parts of the MISO region, do you think this wind resource is going to be utilized more efficiently? Yeah, I think if there are things we can do to shape demand, that'll help. That's a benefit to any intermittent resource. So whether it's solar or wind, 
uh, things like EVs, um, where you can have uh, you can send signals, uh, price signals to the to the end user on when to charge. Um, definitely, that that's something that uh, works very well in enhancing the benefits of renewable energy. Um, we are excited about uh, electrification too. We have um, currently we uh, are expanding our our network of DC fast charging stations. Uh, we expect to have 36 in place at the end of this year, and and you know they're they're located to uh, to help ensure that those transportation corridors have good coverage for for anyone traveling across Iowa. Let, let's talk a little bit about solar because just like uh, the Midwest has abundant wind, it also has a lot of sunshine. Yeah. It has been slower relative to wind and it's taking off. I see you're putting a uh, three megawatt solar installation in Waterloo and adding about 60 megawatts of solar this year and 80 next year. Can you talk about your path towards embrace of solar and where you see that heading the next five years, let's say? Sure. Yeah, solar, I, I doubt we'll ever have as much solar in Iowa as we do wind just because we, we do have a really good wind resource here. Um, but we but we also have a, a solar resource. It's not like um, what you would see in the southwestern United States, but um, we, we're see this, I think we're going to see solar grow uh, for a few reasons. So one of the reasons is that um, our customers are moving, uh, their sustainability goals are shifting to more hourly coverage and to more of a uh, net zero carbon type approach. And so we're also trying to adjust to that. So solar does a really good job of generating, uh, it, it matches up well with wind. Uh, solar produces most in the middle of the day in the summer months, and um, that's not when wind is at its strongest. So. Uh, we have, uh, as you mentioned, uh, started our solar fleet. Uh, we really didn't have any solar in service um, prior to the Waterloo project, which will, it's only a three megawatt project. But um, by the end of the year, uh, and we, we expect to have um, over 60 megawatts in service and then uh, continuing a build out of another 80 megawatts next year. And I think as we, as you look at what's in the interconnection queue in Iowa, I think you're going to see solar uh, start to be the dominant form of energy until it catches up to where its place really should be relative to wind. Um, again, I don't think that'll ever be half wind, half solar. But Mike, what's what's your pathway at Mid American uh, towards uh, zero carbon emissions, given that? Twenty-four uh, percent of your generation now comes from coal. Where do you see that going in the next few years? Yeah, that that comes back to kind of your initial question. It is a challenge to try to be um, uh, completely dependent on dispatchable resources, so or non-dispatchable resources like wind and solar. Um, they they definitely will will play a very large part in net zero. But closing that last little bit of the gap, I think, is going to take kind of a a much broader view, and uh, we we are investigating other things like um, some of the new nuclear technologies uh, that would provide some um, baseload generation, but but that has ramping capability uh, well beyond what existing nuclear today has. Uh, we look at things like carbon sequestration and um, a lot of different energy storage technologies. Uh, hydrogen uh, is one of the things that we think could have a role to play in the future. And a lot of these technologies are, are being developed and there's a lot of uh, R&D money going into them. 
um, but maybe they're not quite commercially available yet, I would say. And so some of these technologies we're going to see over time, what kind of floats to the top as the most competitive uh, means of, of uh, helping fill out the, uh, the demand profile that wind and solar is not able to, to fill out. Energy storage will also, I think, play a large role in that too. Um, the types and the and and you know what type of energy tech energy storage technology that is maybe is a little bit yet to be seen uh, in a wind heavy uh, area like Iowa, but um, I think it'll it'll definitely have a role to play. Um, you, you mentioned nu- nuclear technology. Companies like NuScale are developing small modular reactors. Do you think that's something that's to be ready for prime time for you in the next five years? I don't think in five years, um, but we have um, one of our affiliate companies, uh, a fellow Berkshire Hathaway Energy Company, um, is advancing one of those small modular, modular reactor technologies, and we think it has um, uh, a lot of promise. Uh, the, these newer technologies, these modular technologies, are developed with much better capabilities to um, adapt to grid conditions as you know renewables ramp up or ramp down based on the resource. So I don't think they're going to be ready in five years, but seven years to 10 years maybe is probably the timeline uh, for those new technologies. Now, carbon sequestration was something that the U.S. Department of Energy backed and backed away from and, and then backed again. Yeah. Could you tell me what it looks like now and where you see that practically being avail- available? Yeah, I think I think carbon sequestration, um, part of the reason they back away from it, I think there's, there's really kind of two schools of thought on carbon sequestration as an environmentally friendly technology. Um, it's not, it's not green enough for everybody, but it's the kind of technology that if it's not, if it's not developed and commercialized in the U.S., um, it probably never will be something that can be deployed to developing countries. And so if you really want to make a global change, um, I think there's a good argument to be made that carbon sequestration uh, would have a role to play in that. Um, it's not something that's going to be competitive uh, without, without some kind of subsidization uh, initially uh, to help get that technology uh, fully developed. And what, when you mentioned um, hydrogen, what kinds of applications do you see? And is there, is there a way of using some of your excess wind capacity possibly to generate hydrogen? Yeah, that's probably the most promising path that I see for hydrogen. It's really uh, as much an energy storage and it's also it can also be like a, a demand response type product on the market. When you produce hydrogen uh, using electrolysis of water, it it's a pretty energy intensive uh, process. And so definitely one of the things we're looking at is using hydrogen as an energy store, a form of energy storage, where when you have excess renewable generation, uh, you split water into hydrogen and oxygen, store the hydrogen. And then when you have periods of uh, poor renewable resource, you would then burn that hydrogen in a combustion turbine, uh, either simple cycle or combined cycle combustion turbine project uh, and produce power. The uh, federal government and Congress seems to be on, on about to adopt some sweeping infrastructure legislation that's going to have in excess of $200 billion dedicated to green energy. Given that, that Mid-American is so far along already down that path, do you see any value in uh, that money coming into your region and how would you like to see it deployed? 
Yeah, we see we see value in in that. I think um, our customers are um, requesting. They're they're more particular about the type of energy they get. It's not it's not just reliable and affordable. They're also interested in sustainable uh, energy, and so we're trying to strike those balances. And I think over time, they're only going to become more demanding on the sustainable uh, portion, uh, you know, without ever really giving any ground on the on reliability or affordability. But um, we're going to need we're we're still going to need even in our area that that has a pretty good head start on renewables. Um, we're going to need some uh, incentives if if we're going to you know attain the the level of sustainability that our customers are are really insisting on. I think, you know, as far as what that might look like, I think, you know, transmission investments, there's some incentives that are being contemplated for transmission investments that would be helpful, uh, as well as the other technologies that we discussed. So whether it's further incentives for, for wind and solar uh, as traditional renewable resources or some of the incentives around uh, energy storage, uh, new nuclear technologies, hydrogen, um, those I think could all be beneficial uh, in our area. You, you mentioned how interrelated the grid is uh, and uh, your involvement in the ISO energy markets. Um, when there was a massive winter storm last February down predominantly in Texas, yeah, and there were sweeping outages all the way up into your neck of the woods and across the upper Midwest... Um, how did that affect your service territory, and do you see new ways of insulating yourselves against those kinds of problems? Yeah, so our, our service territory actually was not affected. There were some short rolling blackouts in Iowa, but th- those were not in our service territory. Those were in the um, part of Iowa that's in the Southwest Power Pool, which is a different market than the MISO energy market. Um, we actually, you know... Our, our fleet performed really well through that experience. Our wind fleet never got below 91% availability, which is quite a bit better than what happened further south where they don't have the same kind of winterization um, of their wind fleet or really any of their fleet. Mike, do you think there's a lesson in that in terms of the resiliency provided by wind? Yeah, I th- well, I think part of the issue, if you, if you look at what happened, especially in Texas, uh, the wind fleet did not perform very well. It, it had a really low availability, but if you look at the coal fleet, uh, it had a low availability. Um, I think they even had an, uh, a nuclear unit come offline. And then natural gas, of course, was, was a real challenge through the whole thing. So I think there is a lesson there in that, um, you know, we need, to, we need to expect maybe some more uh, frequent extreme conditions and make sure uh, whether it's winterizing uh, better in Texas or uh, trying to make sure here in Iowa that we're prepared for something like the, the derecho windstorm we had. Just making sure that everything is really built for um, more extreme events. So, uh, of course, Iowa has its share of cold winter weather. Yeah. How how do you go about winterizing your fleet, and uh, what could uh, other regions in the country learn from that? Yeah, there's something called the cold weather package that we purchase with our wind turbines. And so that includes things like it has some heaters in different areas of the nacelle. Uh, the, the actual steel uh, design of the towers is a little bit um, different. And the, the overall wind turbine itself is just different physically. It's not just a matter of going out and uh, putting in you know, a different oil viscosity 
Um, it, it's actually hardware in the turbine that's different. You know, it, it's an extra cost, and I can see where if you were far enough south, you, you maybe not feel that that cost would be justified, but um, certainly in Iowa it is, and we pay for that. We have that in all of our wind turbines, and like I said, they, they perform very well through that cold weather event. Mike, as you look at the next decade, what are some of the the exciting developments that you hope to see in renewable technology and how do you see the grid in your in your territory evolving? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I am excited. I think it's going to change a lot. And if, you, if you're looking at globally what's going to change, I think it's going to be really exciting to see all these different technologies that are really pretty early, kind of in their infancy, competing to fill in that gap that's created uh, when you get too reliant on just renewables. So I think it's really exciting. It's going to be really exciting to see what emerges from that, uh, which of those technologies end up uh, stepping up and really being able to be the economic solution um, to ensure reliability in a, in a grid that has more and more intermittent generation. Um, I think the transmission grid itself is going to have to become more robust. So I, I really think we'll see large investments in transmission that helps time diversify renewables uh, as well. So if uh, if it's windy in one part of the market, uh, the energy market, and not very windy in another, you know you can you can get a more stable level of production uh, within the market, uh, even from just the intermittent generation. Um, I think we will see um, some development of things like new nuclear, which um, you know would be uh, would be interesting. There's Nuclear kind of comes in fits and starts, and then um, you know it. it uh, right now, I think a lot of the nuclear you see retiring may you know make it seem like nuclear is on the way out, but I, I really don't think that's the case. I think it's uh, certainly one of those technologies that can compete for uh, a role in the future. Mike, my my last question is: uh, the utility sector has often been uh, criticized but for the fact of not spending a lot of money on R&D as a percentage of its revenues. Um, given that Mid-American is a foremost uh, technology company in its deployment of cutting-edge renewable technologies, do you think that's fair? And do you are you partnering with organizations like EPRI and Enroll and uh, talk about some of the projects that you might be working collaboratively on? Yeah, that's a good question. I think so in some ways, a regulated utility is really probably not a good vehicle for driving some of the large-scale R&D uh, that goes on. It's something that doesn't have a really high hit rate. And so, you know, our our, uh, our customer base, you know, how much of that cost uh, they bear, you know, I think we need to be very careful with. Um, we're, we're very proud of our low rates here at MidAmerican. Uh, they're they're about 32% below the national average, and we want to keep it that way. But but on the other hand, you know we we are going to rely on these technologies, so we 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 do I think have an obligation to to help develop them. And some of what we can do is we work with others is um, do some pilot projects. For example, we did a pilot project on a, a fairly small battery uh, in our service territory, and. Uh, we can we can help with with some of that kind of thing, but as far as just you know direct funds being used from the regulated utility to support R and D, um, I think that's that's probably something that regulated utilities probably aren't going to be the major player in. Great, thanks. You're welcome. And thanks for listening to Grid Talk. We've been talking with Mike Fair, who's senior vice president of Mid American Energy. 
You have been listening to Grid Talk. Please uh, send us your feedback or questions at gridtalk at nrel.gov. And we encourage you to give the podcast a rating or review on your favorite podcast platform. For more information about the series or to subscribe, visit smartgrid.gov. Thanks for listening to Grid Talk, presented by the U.S. Department of Energy, Office of Electricity, Advanced Grid Research Division. Subscribe through your favorite podcast provider or visit smartgrid.gov for more information.